I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Okay, I think I'm first. Uh, I think you are. I've got a great uh, yeah. reason why I did this lady this week. Um, yeah, what did you So want? last week we did, what did we do? Uh, Belarusian resistance fighters and uh, Polish Holocaust defiant gals, right? I mean, how would you describe yep. it? We gotta I think get that's that. a pretty accurate description. Yeah, so it's a little bleak in subject matter. It's one way of putting it. Just a little bit. I'm having a little coffee to wake myself up. Um, So I decided to go the opposite. I was like, what is the opposite of bleak? And I was like, babies. Babies aren't bleak. And so I thought of okay. this thing. And then on Tuesday, my nephew was born. And I was like, oh, this is even more appropriate. Because it was just Congratulations. like, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. He's super cute. Uh, He's healthy. He's happy. Mom is healthy and happy. So it went as well as... You know, you'd want a birth to go, I think. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's a cute little... He's so cute. I get to see him at Christmas, (laughs) so that'll be fun. Um, So this led me to this woman who I had heard of before in various other ways. um, uh, Named Virginia Apgar. Do you know Virginia Apgar? I do not. The Apgar score. Okay. So... um, This will all come back around in a minute. Okay, so Virginia Apgar is born in Westfield, New Jersey, June 7th, 1909. Uh, She's the youngest of three children. Her parents are Charles and Helen Apgar. And as a kid, she had various interests. She learned to play the violin, which she would play for the rest of her life, and it became kind of an equal obsession of hers, as well as um, interested in science and education at a young age. And later, uh, when describing her family, she said uh, her family was one that never sat down. And you can see that take hold in her because um, I think on like several of her yearbook pictures, uh, the like caption was like, how does she do it? When it listed like all of her uh, extracurricular activities. She graduates from high school. Yeah, she's a go getter, man. She's definitely like a Hermione Granger of the day Mm. if you will harry potter reference you're welcome um she's studious uh she graduates uh high school in 1925 and then she enters into mount holyoke college that same year um so mount holyoke keeps coming up with all of my women is that right or am i like is it a different one no it's the same one it's the probably yeah it's the big one there's just the one well, it's no, like, I think, well, Shirley Chisholm taught there. I mean, I think at least five or six of my ladies have had something to do with it. That's a lot. Maybe it's not five or six, but a bunch of them have had to do with Mount Holyoke. Yeah. So they've got quite a rep, I'm they finding. They do, I, and I which think they knew, those... but I'm finding that out. Yeah, I think they're one of the Seven Sisters, mm-hmm. which is the, like, the Ivy League of the women's colleges. Right. Right, right, right. Oh. So she goes there and majors in zoology, 
And while there, she was also on seven sports teams, played in the orchestra, reported for the college newspaper, and then was in drama. Like, she was on stage. Or participated in dramatic productions, is what they said. So, in... How... When did she sleep? How does she do it? I don't know. <laughs> how does I don't know. she do how it? How does she do it? So she's like, cool, college is fun. I'm graduating in 1929. No big deal. Um, Great year to walk out into the workforce. <laughs> yeah. 2008 is a close second, which is when I did. But uh, yeah. Um, so 1929, when is, when is, is it Black Tuesday? Is that what it is? When's the hit? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely 1929. I can't remember exactly. I feel like it's when. March. Is that wrong? I, you want to Google it? Yeah. I did my research. Basically, the depression doesn't affect her, so I shouldn't, you know, I didn't put a lot. Of, no, it does affect October. her in a weird way. But October. See, so she. October. I assume you graduated at the same time. So she graduates in May, right? Yep. So, like. Probably. Yeah. And then she's like, great. Six months later. Let me go get in there. Boom. Yeah. So it doesn't matter for her. Well, it does matter. It mattered to everyone. It was a terrible time. But uh, she graduates and um, enrolls in medical school at Columbia University. So she has just started uh, medical school when the depression hit. She uh, is one of nine women in a class of 90. So 10% women in that class. Good times. It's so representative. Look at them being so inclusive. Yeah, I'm sure they were super diverse in terms of skin color as well. Um, So uh, she she kicks butt. And uh, later when asked about encountering sexism in her field of medicine, she was like, it wasn't a problem unless you, uh, it wasn't a problem if you were twice as smart as the men. Which I think she decided that she was because <laughs> she's like clearly successful later in her career. She's like, yeah, well, when you're twice as smart as everybody, it's not really a problem and they know it. So it's fine. And just kind of I mean, blazes on. That is like way too real, but I love her just being like straightforward about that. Well, I also love that it's like also a subtle thing of just like, see how imbalanced it is? It doesn't matter because I had to be, you know, perform twice as well. Anyway, whatever. Uh, she's super into surgery and she would really like to be a surgeon. She graduates in 1933 and takes a surgery internship with, uh, doctor, uh, I'm sorry, a two year surgery internship. And while she's there, uh, this other surgeon, Dr. Alan Whipple, uh, really became her mentor for that first year. And he was like, Hmm, I am aware of things. And what I'm aware of is two things. One, the depression is terrible or this economic state we're in is terrible, not only for surgeons, but like for women surgeons, you're not going to get a job. You're just not. It's, it's, uh, it's not because of, you know, we don't want you. It's genuinely because like, A, it's strange for people to have surgeons at all. It's doubly strange to have a woman surgeon. So just be hard in that way. And then the economic component too, is just going to make people hire safer bets. You know what I mean? So he's at least conscious of that and able to be like, maybe this isn't a good bet for you because you won't be able to make a living doing this. I'm just letting you know. And um, he also knew that surgery at the time really needed more research and investigation of anesthesiology as a field. Because at this time, the way it would work uh, was that uh, it was it fell to nurses 
like a lot of things do in medicine, it falls to nurses. Mm -hmm. And not that nurses weren't capable. They were. There was just clearly a lack of knowledge and um, funding and and, and true dedication to, like, one speci- – to make it a speciality, just like heart surgery would later be or, like, any surgery. Um, mm-hmm. Especially as, like, more and more became – more and more research and information came out over the years. So he knew, like, surgery would advance – in tandem with anesthesiology coming forward and being more um, more known about. And he was like, you know who would be great at that? You would. Do you know why? Because you're smart, you're quick, you're like a go-getter. Like all of this energy that makes you a great surgeon, if you fielded that into anesthesiology, we would all benefit. And she was like, you know what? Sound points, Dr. Whipple, famous surgeon who has a procedure named after him. I will, I will... Agree to your advice. Thank you for treating me like a colleague. And uh, so she, um, <laughs> the, the also like benefit of anesthesiology is like it's not a field yet. So if you get to start a field, they don't get to say it's weird for a woman to do it. You know what I mean? So because yep, she's the one. Doing yeah, it. she's like no one else is doing it, so I'm gonna. Um, yeah, and he is quoted as saying the energy, intelligence, and ability needed to make significant trump contributions in this area was found in her um yeah medical speciality great so talking about surgery at this time where are we the 30s uh surgery in general and like humanity is not a really fun history to look at um 20th century just got into like not keeping you awake or chloroforming you, uh, you know, to get through an amputation. Um, original surgeries were usually amputations, and patients would have, like, crazy high mortality, not only because of the procedure and the trauma that you're inducing on a person, but also the fact that they had infection, and they didn't understand infection until germ theory, which is, like, late 19th century. So, like, God help you if you had a surgeon in the 1800s because they didn't wash their hands. Um, There's stories about, like, you would want a doctor to come in. Like, it was fashionable for a doctor to come in. This is, like, early days, like, 1800s or or 1700s. You would want them to come in with blood all over them because then you'd be like, oh, they're really good. They've been been working all day. I can see the work on their garment and not knowing that, like, pathogens and blood and all of that nonsense could like transfer bad things so like one of the big germ theory uh breakthroughs was the fact that this guy observed surgeons or or doctors that were in a morgue observing patients would then go to deliver babies without washing hands and then the babies and the mothers would die way more consistently than surgeons or doctors that wouldn't do that um and he was like hmm Hmm. wonder what that what's could be. what's what's the common thing hmm, germs are born anyway uh and then uh, along with surgery becoming more and more um i don't know uh appreciated not appreciated uh what's the word uh calm no i don't know what i'm trying to think of it was it was seen as pretty much barbaric and terrible and not a form of medicine for a long time and so surgeons who found the the benefit of it and like what it could do to people had to really fight for being um, validated in a medical sense by their colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
sort of moving out of this world of like all I'm here to do is cut your arm off. Yeah, like, barber surgeons. Do you know go. what I mean? To like, mm-hmm. I am a doctor at the same level as like the other doctors in medicine, along with just like the general advancement of science in the 20th century really helped that move forward. Um, yeah, so. I looked up, like, general anesthesia because I was like, what is it? Because it used to be, like, just ether. You know, there's all these stories of, like, just ether happening or, like, opium being administered, chloroform, all of these kinds those of... Those were the days. Those were the big ones, right? And now general anesthesia is what they call it when you, you're put under into a um, medically induced coma, for lack of a better word. And it said a variety of drugs may be administered with the overall aim of ensuring unconsciousness, amnesia, analgesia, loss of reflexes of the autonomic nervous system, and in some cases, paralysis of skeletal muscles. The optimal combination of drugs for any given patient and procedure is typically selected by an anesthetist or another provider. And um, That combination of drugs, I think, is why it's so complicated and now a medical field, because I think it varies by person, procedure, and all of that stuff. Because a certain cocktail of drugs is going to maybe knock you out, but not make you forget. Or, you know, there's those weird, you know, Grey's Anatomy cases where, like, I'm awake during surgery, but I can't move, you know. And that's not to say that that happens all the time but it can happen and so you want a person who's like super skilled to be able to do all of the boxes of what the benefit of anesthesia is um great all right does that help context wise anyway none of this was figured out when she's getting in there yeah it's giving me like horrible flashbacks like getting my wisdom teeth out right like all of the like post anesthesia like delightfulness but glad that it was a thing and wasn't awake for that so thank you yeah right it's a it's it's seen as like i mean there's still a lot to be done about it but it's still seen as like the miracle of modern times is this i mean imagine you know we have surgical residencies we have like all kinds of things that you can get surgery on and it wouldn't have been possible without like training and uh research into this field so after she did her internship with Dr. Whipple, she trains for a year as um, in a nurse anesthetist program because that's the only people that were qualified to be administering anesthesia were nurses. So she had to go to that field for a second. And um, she then does a residency at the University of Wisconsin and Bellevue Hospital in New York. And so in 1938, she goes back to Presbyterian Hospital and she becomes the director of a division of anesthesia within the Department of Surgery. So they not only, like, make room for her, they, like, give her her own department in a way. Or, I'm sorry, uh, division. There's a lot of nomenclature that I don't want to be wrong about because there's all this, like, hierarchy and stuff. Uh, she's the first woman to head a division at that hospital. And she was responsible as the director to recruit and train anesthesiology residents, teaching medical students and coordinating anesthesia work and research at the hospital. So definitely like forward thinking hospital to start training doctors in this way and to kind of push it forward as being a a more special uh, type of medicine. During the next, it's like such a mm-hmm. refreshing change to see like an institution actually supporting yeah. a woman doing groundbreaking work as opposed to her having to like 
fight against it constantly. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, the need was felt for sure at this time. So uh, she she transforms uh, Presbyterian in terms of, like, how they do surgery. And the the surgical ward is now transformed because there's doctors not only performing surgery but there's doctors on the an anesthesia assisted by wonderful nurses but everyone's just like a little bit it's just more advanced you don't see that very much at all across the country at this time and she establishes the anesthesiology education program there so other people can be at her level um despite her title and all of this, like, great groundbreaking work. She did have trouble recruiting people because it was new. Not only that, I'm sure there's an element of, like, do you want to come work for me, a lady? And people are like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how that would work. How can you handle difficult conversations? No one wants to be lectured by a woman. It's the 30s. Oh, what has changed? Um, Surgeons did not accept anesthesiologists as equals. So the same thing that surgeons had a problem with... <laughs> When they started, they decided to not pass on to their fellow brethren, uh, and uh, pay is it bad for that my only image of surgeons is from Scrubs as them being like sort of aggressive jockey guys in green scrubs. I mean, that I have this, that's this image I have of them being like, "Yo, bro, like you ain't doing this thing right. We ain't gonna trust you." I think basing your opinion off popular culture is always a great choice because that's mm -hmm, why that's it's popular culture. But at the same time, I do think, like, I, I would want to interview some uh, doctors and see what they think. I think, like, any group, when there's division and uh, specialties, there's going to be some rivalry and opinions about who's doing a good job and who's not. And I think surgeons have a lot of adrenaline and a lot of um, extremely high stakes to their career that maybe lends itself to a certain personality. Akin to maybe a fighter pilot. Do you know what I mean? Not that they're the same, mm -hmm. but I'm just saying like, your job is always high stakes. You are moving very quickly and very intensely. You have to know a lot of stuff and be at the top of your game at all times. Because not only like for a fighter pilot, like lives hang in your hands, surgeons lives hang in your hands. Now I am neither a fighter pilot nor a surgeon. <laughs> That is maybe just my uh, ignorant, ignorant opinion. But I think, yeah, I mean, I am not a surgeon or a fighter pilot because I don't possess those qualities that I see there. So maybe that's ignorant, but, you know, I don't know. Race car drivers. Do right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's just, mm -hmm. you know, that's more competitive rather than like pursuit yeah. of a like, are... ultimately good goal. Of mm -hmm. like helping people, you know, it's a it's an intense choice of a career, man. Intense. Yeah, that you're like day to day is like, yeah, I'm gonna like cut into someone today. Also, like, it doesn't go well. It's where she die. started in medicine. She wanted to be a surgeon. What is she self described as? Go getter, overachiever, never sat down, many varied interests, happy to be around people. And that's might not be all surgeons, but like. <laughs> you know, and like surgery is like a dynamic, intense field that like was growing and, and showing how things could change lives, you know, on a very practical level with the body. I don't know. That's a lot of, <laughs> that's a tangent. Anyway, yeah, surgeons are jocks. Um, 
She's the, so she had problems getting some buddies to do what she was doing, and pay was definitely less than uh, other specialities, which doesn't draw a lot of people, but 19, by 1946, it had started to, like, become more of a field that everyone agreed with, and, like, through her hard work, people started to be like, yeah, she actually, you know, this is working. Maybe we should put a little more effort into it. It took a little time, is what I'm saying. Um, by 1949... Uh, anesthesiology became a full department. Uh, I don't know what that means. I think it just means like more students were willing to like specialize in it and therefore it needed more resources from the university aspect or from the teaching aspect of the hospital. Uh, mm -hmm. She was like, okay, I guess I'll be chair of the department then. And they were like, no, we're going to give it to this guy who's younger than you. Is that cool? And she's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I made the department, but that's fine. <laughs> But That's it's okay. She, she's like, oh, okay, I'm not going to be um, bogged down with all this administrative work. I'm going to go do what I want to do, which is obstetric anesthesia. So... Ah, I see now how we're getting back to the babies. Yeah, she's got this whole backtrack of like, oh, I'm not going to do that? Okay, I'm going to do this where no one's going to fight me on it and needs help. So I'll just put all of my energy over here and, you know, you'll do great at being the chair of the department. I don't need it. I'm, I'm Virginia Apgar. Uh, so at this time, we're in the, like, heat of the baby boom. And uh, even though the infant mortality rate had gone down since 1900 in the first 50 years of the century, neonatal mortality rate had not gone down or had not gone down at the same rate. And there's a lot of questions about why and, you know, in terms of birth in the United States, it's quite a journey of how women have had babies in this country. At this time, I mean, hospitals are not, I wouldn't say new, but they're definitely like young and figuring it out and, and doing a lot of good. But uh, birth in hospitals is um, maybe like, this is like one of the first generations of full birth in hospital like everyone's having their baby in a hospital you know what i mean so yeah to be clear about terms infant just to be sad for a second infant mortality rate or infant in in medicine is between birth and like one year that's considered infant when they say things like that and neonatal is the first 28 days so where are you most in the first 28 days for a lot of babies you're definitely in the hospital or dealing with a lot of doctors so there is a correlation between like, why, why is this birth, why is this um, mortality rate not going down when we have the advancement of like more doctors are present? They're in a clean environment of a hospital. We know about germs now. Like that doesn't correlate with what we know about medicine. Anyway, um, a majority of those deaths were due to lack of oxygen for the baby. And she was like, well, why aren't we giving them oxygen? Like, what about the process of having a baby makes us not aware that the baby needs that? Uh, we should figure out a way to maybe... Let's figure out a way, as we are all nerdy mathletes in this hospital, to maybe rate a baby when it comes out. And by that rating, we know whether to administer care or not. And here is where I like to okay. cite another podcast that I listened to about her called Stuff You Missed in History Class, where it's like, they they talked about her for a second. They're like, we don't know what she did before 
or what 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 the birthing ward was what the um sorry what the um what it was like to have a baby before like did they just not look at your baby when it came out and they were like well it lives or it dies put it over there we got to get mom fixed up i don't know i this turned into a lot of questions about or a lot of research about what was it like to give birth before 1950 and i i encourage you to maybe pick a very specific time to look into that cuz it is bleak dark sad awful. Uh, there's a thing called Twilight Sleep. There's a thing called, uh, there's an episode of Mad Men where Brady Draper goes through it and it phased out in popularity in the 60s, probably because of the work this lady does, but along with a lot of other work done by nurses and, and doctors to kind of reveal the kind of maybe poor choices they were making in terms of treating mothers. So really quick, uh, just to give you a sum up, I'll just do this. Um, Twilight Sleep is where through the ignorance of anesthesiology of the time, they thought they were knocking a mother out to not feel the pain of the birth and therefore to spare her that kind of trauma. This would, but because they didn't have the right maybe um, blend of drugs, this was incorrect information. They didn't remember the pain, but at the time of having the birth, they were given drugs in such a way that in some cases, Psychotic episodes took place. They were in pain and they didn't know why. They had to be strapped down. I mean, it's just horrible. It's horrible. And to and it was very common, is what I will say. And there's this whole thing about Ladies Home Journal uh, in 1958 did this big expose about, like, what is going on? Because that's the other thing is mothers would often be alone when giving birth. And by alone, I mean there was a nurse and a doctor there. But... No family, no husbands, no nothing. And uh, you'd be drugged in this way that was like, going to be great for you. And then you would be away, you would be foggy or, or drugged in a way that made you, like I said, in some cases have these episodes. In other cases, you just wouldn't remember. And then you'd wake up and there'd be a baby on you. And you'd be like, oh, oh I'm, I'm a mom now. And for those of you that don't know, as you're having a baby, there's a surge of hormones that take place that let you bond with that baby. So those weren't maybe occurring in the way that they should be. And then that's not to say, like, all babies born before 1950 were disconnected from their moms. Clearly they weren't. But I will say, in my own experience, when talking to my mom about this, she was like, oh, yeah, well, when my mom, had, my grandmother, had six children uh, every two years... Um, she, she was like, oh yeah, well back then they just knocked you out and you had the baby. So apparently, I mean, she doesn't know a lot of details because my grandma didn't maybe, wasn't open in that way, but, uh, it was definitely a different experience than what my mom or even my sister-in-law just had with her child. And it's gotten way better. So we have that, to, but if, if you want a little weird journey on birth in the United States, whoo. It's a hoot. It sounds like a um, terrifying. It's a miracle we're all here today. <laughs> not women weren't like, nope, I'm done. We're not doing this anymore. This is psycho. I am not a fan. Um, going back to Virginia. Sorry, we're really tangenting this morning. Uh, so yeah, it seems obvious today that we would be like, we should look at that baby that just came out and make sure and make sure they're good. But apparently, before this, they were like. You know, if it lives, it lives. If it dies, it dies. It, it's going to come out wrong. It's not going to live. You know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of focus on it. She's like, well, I think I can, you know, science this up. 
And uh, the other thing that would happen is, like, they would put the most senior member of the medical staff on the mother because clearly, like, they're going through oh quite a lot. I, I don't think anybody would want to say, yeah, don't put the junior kid on the mom having the baby. But at the same time, they didn't put an experienced person necessarily on the baby either. So an inexperienced, med- like a student or a young professional having to be like, I guess this baby's good. I've never seen one before. So it's only going to be in a textbook. I guess we're good. Um, and yeah, and they're just figuring out like how a hospital should be run anyway. So uh, Virginia sees a need and she comes up with a test of five qualities that you can do very quickly on a baby as it's laying there and you're taking all of the stats. Each of these five qualities would be rated between zero and two, two being preferred, zero being like nothing is going on. And the combined score would let you know how the baby was doing and if further or immediate care was needed for the baby in a more like consistent way. So it's, it is all based on judgment and visual and like, what are you seeing and feeling with this child? But at the same time, if you kind of streamline into like super specific things, you know, if the baby needs to get like put in an incubator or given oxygen or... Even just, like, um, getting, you know, suctioned out of their mouth. You know, they don't... Yeah. Anyway. There was a need for this score, apparently. So, the five qualities are color, heart rate, reflex, muscle tone, and respiratory effort. And uh, it's done between... It's done in the first minute of birth. And it's... If it needs... If the score is super low, they'll do it again five minutes after that. If it's still low, they'll continue to do this five quality check as often as needed. Um, a score of seven or higher is pretty good. Uh, 10 is perfect, but often doesn't happen because, you know, the baby's cold or the baby, um, there's a lot of like, you know, you've just been born. So your heart is like, you're learning how to breathe. You know, you didn't have to breathe two minutes ago. And now all of a sudden you're like, bah, figuring it out. So if the baby score is three or below, they know, well, they're already performing, you know, life-saving techniques on the baby, like getting its, you know, airway open or getting it warm, checking its heart rate and such to kind of provide uh, care in that way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's super successful. So uh, just really quick, if you're curious, um, going through, uh, at, at the time of the score, a resident student came up with the idea of making a is it a mnemonic device to remember how it is? And so, he yeah. actually changes the words to mean appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, and respiration, which if you realize is her last name, Apgar. And that's why it's called the Apgar test. And they correlate with like the other ones. So like uh, color is appearance, heart rate, pulse, reflex is grimace, muscle tone is activity, respiratory effort is respiration. And so you want the baby Grimace pink. feels like a bit of a stretch Grimace there, is but like, otherwise that's... <clears throat> Grimace is what we call, um, you know, in the classic where they slap the baby and it cries. Mm-hmm. It's that. It's a, a... What did I say? Reflex irritability. Grimace. That counts, right? So they... Is that... So that's like a legit thing that was done. You would just... Not, like, not necessarily. In the test that I saw her do with a nursing student, she was like, you could do... Uh, you can just... Um, you tap them on the feet, kind of... Not not painfully, but enough to, like, get a reaction of them. It just lets you know, like, their mm-hmm. reflexes are all working and therefore their nervous system is all kind of firing and 
for her case, she hit the feet, which I know is like the farthest from your brain. So then you have yeah. a better indication. But that cry, while brutal, it seems, is also really helpful because then you know they can breathe. You know they can suck oxygen in in a very big way. And that oxygen then flows to their blood and therefore their little hands get pink because they have oxygenated blood, which is feeds into the appearance one. Um, their pulse, you know, grimace. Activity is like uh, when you see them, they'll push against a baby's feet and if the baby kind of pushes or is move, they do move a little bit, you know, they'll stretch their little legs mm -hmm. out. And then respiration. Are they breathing? Are they crying? Because you hit them on the feet. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. And then you have a happy baby. I mean, a sad baby at the time. But then they get wrapped up and they're happy. Um, so, yeah, a resident student came up with the device. So she didn't name it after herself. Her student did. And she was kind of like, oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah, let's do that. And uh, they start using this on all the babies in the hospital. And uh, over time, with 12 other institutions, they studied 17,221 babies and established that the APGAR score in the five minutes after, after birth, uh, they can predict neonatal survival and neurological development of that infant through its first year. So you already know, kind of, you have a starting point of, like, what your baby needs and where it needs to go. Um, That's awesome. They also found... <laughs> This, this stat is great. If the doctor who delivered the baby had to do the score, they would score their babies higher than if, like, this other doctor who didn't... Like, the obstetrician who was in charge of delivering the baby was not allowed to score their own baby because they would, like, grade on a curve of, like, well, it's my baby, so... I think it's a 10. You know what I mean? And so that you'd have to be, like, <laughs> impartial, bring another doctor in to score the baby outside of the, you know, context of the relationship between doctor and patient. Um, so like baby grade inflation. Yes. So you'd have to have like a more accurate score to actually provide care to the child, the egotist. Um, in 1953, she publishes her work and the APGAR score has uh, becomes a standard test across the globe in maternity wards for helping uh, provide care to infants. She... Um, goes on with this kind of uh, baseline to correlate other things that impact an APGAR score are length of delivery, if it's a cesarean or vaginal, if uh, how much anesthesia is used, all have an effect on the baby's APGAR score and therefore their quality of life in that first year and maybe life. And she does this with two colleagues, Dr. Duncan Holliday and Dr. Stanley, Stanley James. And, uh, over time, this just it transforms, you know, infant care to make doctors realize they have to look at the baby. They have two patients, not just one. Um, they now have data on how to deliver babies, treat mothers, and treat newborns to allow for neonatal mortality rate to go down and births in general to take a huge step forward. So she's like, cool, well, I've done that. I've changed birth in America. What should I do now? You know what I'm interested in? I've been watching 17,000 babies get born. So I should maybe find correlations between pregnancy and congenital disabilities or birth defects. And maybe there's a way to help inform people to lower those or 
be informed about what they do for a child when born with them, or is there any kind of solutions we can provide? And to maybe lower the stigma of having a child that's born different. Um, so March of Dimes was founded by Franklin Roosevelt in 1938. At the time, it was the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, and it was to prevent and combat polio in children specifically. But by 1955, there was this beautiful thing called a vaccine that was created, and therefore children didn't have to have polio anymore. Pretty big deal. Get your vaccines. I am not a doctor, but it's highly recommended. Vaccines are great. Yeah. There's like a really, if, you, if you're if you interested, there's a great set of stories about these schools with low vaccination rates that yeah. are getting diseases that like had been eradicated and are back because yeah. people aren't getting vaccinated. Yep. Vaccines are terrible. Nope. They're not. They're great. Uh, the things that prevent. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, polio uh, vaccine, one of the great achievements of the 20th century. Uh, it was invented by Jonas Salk and um, it, it, oh my God, it's just, it was amazing at the time. So the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis was like, well, we did it. We've got the vaccine, but we have this great organization. What should we do? So we will, we will focus on not only, um, you know, birth, uh, I don't want to say, I kept hearing birth defects is maybe not the right term. So congenital disabilities. Uh, maybe there's a way that we can focus our energy on that. So Virginia's like, I like that March of Dimes people. I'm going to go get another master's degree and become, uh, I'm going to go get another master's degree. Where did she go? For public health is the what the degree is in. And then she goes to be the head of the Division of Congenital Malformations for the March Dimes. So she's just like, you know what? I need like a yeah. nice, easy, laid back job now yeah. that I've already accomplished these things. Let me help babies all the time. Let me help people. Let me help women. I love it. She was uh, apparently very energetic. Are you shocked? And um, extremely empathetic and, and personable with all these people that were going through such you know, uncharted territory. And she traveled all around educating people on the need for like further research and benefits of having this knowledge. So she's definitely on the ground floor of like, we don't know, will you please help us find out? And that was able to double the annual income of the March of Dimes while she was there. And uh, let's see. She also, I'm going to read a lot of like titles. Hold on. She served on the National Foundation of basic medical research, vice president for medical affairs. Uh, she wrote a book in 1972 uh, for women who were pregnant called Is My Baby All Right? and like how to care for yourself in pregnancy. She was a lecturer, a clinical professor of pediatrics, which was a new discipline at Cornell School of Medicine. She taught study of birth defects while there. She was the first to hold a faculty position in the new area of pediatrics in 1973. She was a lecturer in medical genetics at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. That's where she got her master's. Johns Hopkins found it. Um, nice. So in 1960, mid-60s, mid there was a really bad outbreak of rubella, or at the time, German measles. Uh, it was pretty harsh and led to um, the Senate... Uh, or the, the, the federal level wanting to know why they should fund a vaccine in that regard and she was able to testify before the senate about why um funding was needed and a vaccine 
was licensed by the early 1970s. She testified in 1969. And so they were able to get that funding, get a vaccine out, and now you can get a rubella vaccine. Once again, vaccines are great. (sighs) Who wants to be sick? I just don't get it. And, like, the whole... The whole nonsense about, like, it causes autism. What are you saying about autism? What are you saying about those people who are on the spectrum? You're saying, like, ew, my kid can't be that? Like, that's a whole other mess of problems. And the best part is there's no scientific evidence. Exactly. And it's nonsense. Some mom thought that because their kid... I don't know. It. I mean, I yeah, get it. You're scared. But at the same time, there's nothing to back you up. Right. And There's I know like I just study. Yeah, I know I just said a non-nonsense about why medicine was terrible, but like also it categorically improves over time. Yes. So and give saves it a shot. Lives. And saves people's lives. Ugh. Virginia Apgar would be really nice to you probably because she's a great person, but she'd want to punch you in the throat <laughs> if you said you didn't <laughs> want to vaccinate your child. We can um, say that definitively. I think her, I think all of our grandmas who like lived through polio and like got their kids polio vaccines would probably be like, you did what? Wait, I'm sorry. You did what? Ugh, FDR is just like so mad. Um, okay. So what else? Yeah. She always believed, um, the main reason of her effort in March of Dimes was to remove the stigma of having a child with a birth defect or having a birth defect yourself. Uh, She becomes the vice president for medical affairs in 1968 and authored uh, more than 70 publications on anesthesiology, newborn resuscitation, and birth defects. Uh, Also in 1972, she convenes this committee on perinatal health with several giant organizations that I can list, but it's a lot of titles. And uh, this committee deliberated for four years on a plan to improve maternal fetal health and reduce infant mortality. And the reason they had to debate is because you're trying to set up a system of care that A, all of these specialities agree upon, B, is funded by, or uh, founded by research, but at the same time, like, how are you going to treat someone in New York City who is very wealthy and maybe has all the money in the world the same way that you're going to be able to treat someone in Kansas who doesn't have a GP and needs to have the same kind of information and care uh, available. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not to say that they solved that problem, but they needed to think about all kinds of mothers and all kinds of babies and all kinds of situations. So it took a while. It took a while. Um, although she kept very busy With her work, she was also able to uh, maintain her other interests, of which she had several, one of which was playing the violin. She would, as she traveled, she would play in different, like, groups, wherever she happened to be, like little quartet groups uh, that she'd pop in on. There's a story that she found a friend who introduced her how to make make violins. So she made two violins, a viola and a cello. You know, no no big deal. While changing babies uh she enjoyed what did i say she enjoyed gardening fly fishing golfing stamp collecting she started taking flying lessons in her 50s and she wanted to fly uh her goal was to fly under the george washington bridge i don't know why she was just into it okay um she got countless awards and honorary doctorates while uh in her lifetime and 
She didn't really participate politically in women's causes, but I think you can see from her work that she found a need and helped many people. Um, she never retired, remained active until her, the very end. She was, uh, she had a uh, liver disease at the end of her life. And that's what ended up causing her death in 1974. She passed away at the Columbia Medical Center, which is where she had spent a lot of her life working. And in 1976, that committee that had looked to reduce infant mortality rate produced a study called Toward Improving the Outcome of Pregnancy, which set forth a model for the regionalization of perinatal care in the United States. Um, <clears throat> there is now a Virginia Apgar Academy of Medical Educators at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, and they're like a community that helps promote and uh, support education at the medical level. For students and and teachers residents faculty all of that um, membership in the academy represents not only recognition of excellence as an educator but also a commitment to contributing to the educational life of our medical community and i found this quote many times uh it has been said that every baby born in a modern hospital anywhere in the world is looked at first through the eyes of dr virginia apgar which led me to also ask, so I told that story about my grandma, but I asked my mom who had babies in the late 80s and the early 70s. So quite a span of time. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, how did that change? Because like you sort of were feeling the effects of APGAR at the very beginning. And then in the 80s, it was a whole different world. And I also asked my sister-in-law who just had my nephew. I was like, so what happened with, you know, and the things that have changed, uh, the first, my, my mom had my sister, she was alone in the delivery room with the doctor and the nurse. She didn't think to ask questions. She didn't know she could. She didn't, uh, she just trusted them and was like, let's figure it out. She had not talked to her mom beforehand about anything like that. And uh, it was fine, but like, you know, you're 20 years old and you're like, okay, I guess this is what happens. I'm going to trust it. And then down the line, she has my brother Joe in 1985. And it was like, how is that different? And then me in 87. So I was like, how is that different? And she's like, oh, well, they did. Your dad was there. That was the biggest thing. Didn't have, didn't have that before. Your dad was in the room and was able to like, what are you doing? What is that? What are you doing over there? What's going on? Which maybe just is my dad, but what's that? What's, <laughs> what's happening? You know, able to advocate in, in times of need, but. Um, and then the biggest change she said was that, uh, she remembers them doing the test and all of that. Like they take them away to clean them up. And while they're cleaning them, they like do the APGAR test specifically. But the thing they first do or first did with my mom, which I felt was pretty revolutionary is they put us right on her chest with that skin to skin, which is a big thing now. And now mm -hmm. they make you do it with the dads because they find that it's equally beneficial. And I found my sister-in-law said that they do that too when she had my nephew this week she uh they put her right on it and they kept him there because his temperature was low and sometimes when you put the mother's warmth or the father or whatever it helps to regulate that baby's temperature which oh, very cool. they've only found like by doing that research or like now um we were taken to the nursery and we would come back every four hours to see our mom right in the little 
what is it called? Little trolley thing. A little trolley, a little baby trolley. And uh, now with my sister's pregnancy, he was in the room with her the whole time she was there. Um, oh, in a little cool. bassinet, and they would come in and deal with the baby and the mom together right there, and do the vitals and all that stuff. So that's good and bad. She didn't sleep at all when she was at the hospital, but at the same time, she didn't have to like. She got to be with her baby the whole time. So we're learning, and that's even like one generation. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I yeah. mean it's kind of crazy to think that like my grandfather was born in the back room of his house. Yeah, like, really? Straight up, like, at home, like, his yeah. mom just, like, like we're doing this now. Yeah. Um, And that, like, I, you know, two generations removed, born, like, in a hospital. Yeah. And we don't have to talk about the details of my birth, but, like, were it not for modern medical science, I would not be here right now. No, totally. So thank totally. you, Virginia. Yeah. And I'm not saying you need to have a baby in a hospital. I think there's a lot of midwife options that are, like uh possible i think it's definitely stigmatized here more than it probably should be but at the same time like you know it was nice i i think a hospital can provide a lot of um reassurance in case of something do you know what i mean yeah but i will say you know post apgar medicine in terms of childbirth it definitely you saw a huge decrease in the use of those uh twilight sleep births that were happening I, that makes me think she, like, she was around for those. Do you know what I mean? She's in the peak season yeah. of that happening. They start to wane in the 60s. So she gets to see it completely change. Like, not only her participation in, like, the birth of the baby, but, like, how we're treating the mothers changed as well. And um, her work on anesthesiology, I think, helped impact that, too, because all of a sudden there was a correlation to, like, what you're giving the mother affecting the baby in a way that made people rethink how they administered that and i'm not saying like Mm -hmm. she was the sole reason for that but i think there's definitely like a correlation towards her research and the correlation between like how you're treating the mother with drugs and how it affects the baby and do you want that what is the benefit what is the cost you know all of that stuff yeah like thinking things through in a slightly more rigorous way yeah before you just like put a bunch of drugs in someone yeah yeah go figure it affects things But also, I think the other fascinating thing is, like, before you get outraged about, like, well, why did they do this without testing? Like, why did you do all these things? But I will say, can you imagine being a medical researcher and being like, hi, we'd like to test these drugs on your pregnant wife or your pregnant child or your baby? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not, there's a very big fear of, uh, like, uh, let me be clear. Um, Virginia Apgar lived through, like, the thalidomide scare. Do you know what that is? I do not. So thalidomide in the 60s was a anti-nausea a pill you could prescribe a pregnant woman. And it happened in Europe before. It, the FDA didn't approve it in America. Um, but in Europe, all these women in the 60s were taking thalidomide because it helped ease their uh, morning sickness. But there was horrible reactions to it for the fetus in the, in the womb. And so babies were born with a lot of... Um, ailments some of which were like their limbs weren't properly formed and things of that nature and like very huge swaths of the population were affected by it and like i said like the fda didn't have to were able to like it was seen as like whoo we missed that but the reason people get mad at it is like why would you give pregnant women something you didn't test and it's like who would want to test something on a pregnancy 
Do you know what I mean? Like that's high stakes. And so it's good and bad, right? Because you're not putting people in harm. And also what woman is going to be like, oh yeah, sign me up for the new experimental drug. Please put me and my baby at risk. Or maybe put us in the placebo group. Even better. You know what I mean? It's just not a field of, um, it's scary territory for both participants and medical professionals. So I found that interesting. I don't know what the answer is. I wish there was better research for pregnant women out there because clearly it's a neglected field. But um, at the same time, I don't want anybody to be put in harm's way. So I don't know what to do. That's why I'm not a doctor. (laughs) But I I appreciate that. Take away from this week's episode. Yeah. Why we're not doctors. Yeah. Um, yeah, but she's great. Uh, there's one YouTube clip that I should, uh, post on our social of her getting an award for, like, Outstanding Women in Science in, like, 1953. And she's just so matter-of-fact giving this award. And I think the main thing that I took away from it is she's just like, women can do this, they just need to get into it. Like, uh, she's just so chill about it. She's like, oh, women are gonna get in here, and it's gonna be great, and I'm not gonna be special. I'm not gonna be needed to be prized at this award ceremony basically because mm-hmm. they're coming right behind me and i can feel it um that's awesome yeah so she's pretty she's pretty kick butt making violins making helping violins, babies changing lives changing medicine yeah there you go virginia apgar thank you thank you yeah Great. So I also, in an attempt to sort of recalibrate from the very important but very depressing episode we did last <laughs> week, um, have gone more in a sort of uplifting and I think seasonally appropriate end. So I think if we've calculated correctly, this episode's going to come up right before New Year's, mm. I think. So okay. I thought what would be more appropriate than looking into champagne, which we will all hopefully be consuming in large quantities come the new year. You mean responsibly? Responsibly, because that's <laughs> what we encourage here. At Please the drink History responsibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in sort of looking into it, it turns out there's one woman who, in a lot of ways, is sort of single-handedly responsible for the modern champagne industry and for allowing all of us bougie middle-class people to feel super fancy (laughs) by drinking champagne. That is its brand, isn't it? It's a hundred percent its brand. And she is actually pretty responsible for making it that particular brand. And so without further ado, let's talk about Barb Nicole Cliquo, who is known by like a lot of different names, but that's sort of the one that gets stuck with her and her champagne brand. So that's the one I'm going to stick with. All right. Um, she is born Barb Nicole Ponsardine in December of you and the 1777. French. I know it's, I need to work on it because it's just going to keep coming up and it right. hasn't gotten better yet. Um, she's born in Ri, France um, <laughs> to a bourgeoisie family. Her dad is a textile industrialist and, um, And this is not necessarily the best point to be an industrialist. French Revolution is coming down the pike, 1789. Mm -hmm. Um, Dad is a monarchist, but does a nice quick switch to become a Republican and manages to avoid getting his head cut off like some of our other uh, podcast fathers in the past. 
Um, and so they managed to avoid sort of the worst ends of revolutionary political persecution. Um, by all accounts, she is an incredibly intelligent and driven young woman. But here's the moment where I'm going to sidebar to be really frustrated about some of the articles I was reading about her that are like disproportionately about the men in her life. Um, like you would read them and you'd be like, oh, this is an interesting, you know, history of these guys. I wonder why they're all here, even though it's ostensibly about her and her role in developing Champagne. Mm. And I was incredibly frustrated. And then into my inbox pops this article from my mom about all of these new sort of edgy documentaries about powerful women. And it's this film critic writing and basically calling out these documentaries for having the same problem that this article that was frustrating me had, which is that they're ostensibly about these women, but end up talking about them through the lens of the men in their life. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And so proposes a new Bechdel test for documentaries or for stories about women more broadly, which I thought Mm -hmm. was like great and seems very needed. Um, And the original Bechdel test for those who are not familiar is for a film looking at female characters and it passes the test if there are two named female characters who have a conversation that is not about a man and unsurprisingly very few movies pass this test Mm -hmm. so that but the new test which is proposed by libby coleman who's the author of this article um in particularly looking at documentaries is does the film spend less than eight percent of its screen time focused on men and does it avoid using the woman's search for a male partner as the dramatic crux of the film? Oh, my God. Um, what films does she talk about? What documentaries? Uh, the, the, um, the Lady Gaga documentary and the RBG documentary are the two ones that it sort of focuses on. Because you mm-hmm. want those to both be like, oh, yes, these are amazing, empowered women. Yeah. But when you look at them they're giving sort of disproportionate screen time to the men in their lives and to mm-hmm. the role that their relationships with these men play as opposed to just focusing on the incredible things that these women are doing as people. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So I found that super frustrating, but was super excited to see that there were people writing on that issue that I could then use to channel all of my frustration with that particular article. We will yep. be linking to that in the show notes for this week just so you can all experience that joy and frustration along with me (laughs) yeah so Uh, champagne yeah um so she unlike most of our 18th century women unlike a lot of the women we've talked about on the podcast previously does not get married until the respectable age of 21 whoa i know and in 18th century france this is kind of a radical decision you'd have had Um, six kids by now Um, So in 1798, her dad arranges her marriage to the son of a neighboring family with a competing textile company. Ooh. The idea that merger cut down on competition. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Nice big corporate merger. And legend has it that they were married in a wine cellar. I couldn't find anything to confirm this, but it's some nice foreshadowing. I love a good legend has it. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, There's apparently the priest gave them a book about Don Perignon, who's sort of the initial figure in the French champagne industry. All of that seems a I little stretched to me. I think we found a business later, and then we're like, let's say we did this, babe. And they're like, cool. That'll add to the mystique of our brand. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
all of that is to say, as arranged marriages go, this one seems to be working pretty well for both parties. Um, her she husband, was an adult, maybe? Because she was an adult who, like, was a, able to make consent and, like, choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so her husband, Francois, is also ambitious like her. And together they take a look at their family businesses and they're like, okay, textiles, those are going great. We also have a little bit of a wine business. Maybe that's where we want to focus our attention. Um, up until this point, um, her husband's family had basically had wine as like a side hustle. So when you had to... That's how they ship, described it? I, that's Sorry. a technical term. Um, it's that it hustle. Sorry, bad French accent. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, that when you shipped things, you in a way sort of rented out the entire boat to ship things and so if you Mm -hmm. couldn't fill the boat with your goods you're just paying for empty space Mm -hmm. and so what the Clicquot family would do is they'd fill as much of it as possible with their textiles and then whatever extra space they had they'd just buy some wine from local suppliers stick it in the ship and try to sell it when they sold their textiles Um, which is like a way of doing business but obviously like not super focused on like the quality of the wine or making a you know a particular label so Barb Nicole and her husband are like, we can make this better. So they mm-hmm. go around, they try to learn as much as they can about the wine business, and then they're going to try to invest a lot of their time and their resources into making it a thing. Unfortunately, the late 18th and early 19th century in France is like not the best time to be trying to make a go at French wine. Um, the Napoleonic Wars are just about to kick off, and as part of that, the British establish a blockade around France and parts of continental Europe that they occupy, which makes it incredibly difficult to export things by sea. And also when France is invading your country, you're probably not super jazzed about like going to your corner store and buying French wine. Like the whole army marching down your street thing probably does not endear you to products with a little French flag stamped on them. Um, Yeah, not, yeah. So it, unsurprisingly does not go well for them. Um, They struggle financially. They struggle to really get their business to grow in the way they need it to. And in 1805, less than six years after they marry, Francois is going to pass away. Um, And there's sort of a discussion about whether um, he dies by suicide because the business is collapsing and he's sort of unable to stop it, or whether it's something a little bit more run-of-the-mill at that point, like typhus or another sort of contagious disease um either way his father decides that without the son to run the business he's going to shut down the wine business it's not doing well anyway it doesn't seem like it's a good investment um but barb nicole being the sort of driven passionate intelligent woman that she is is like no i can make this work um and so she goes to her father-in-law and it's like i've got a proposal Give me the money I need to get us out of this issue. Invest it. We can make this profitable. I can make this work. Let me run the wine business. And kind of surprisingly, he's like, okay, let's do this. On one condition. You have to apprentice with a master winemaker. And she's like, okay. that I mean, that makes sense. I'm not an expert winemaker. It would probably be good to have those skills. Um, Right. And this is the point in this article that bothers me where you lose all sense that there's a woman involved and it's just a story about like 
the winemaker she apprentices with and then the people who invest her money in her and this other winemaker who comes in it's like not is interesting. that i mean is that because that's where the information is do you know what i mean like no one else was writing about her so they like people writing about her now don't have the resources in the way that you know what I, I mean? not to give them a way out but it's, no, at the same time it becomes like literary license to write about her but you don't have accounts of it maybe yeah maybe. i mean that's a that's a fair question i think in this particular instance um there is a pretty robust biography of her um Okay, well then, you're just lazy. But I, th- I think that is a sort of a broader question that historians in particular sort of deal mm-hmm. with, is if you're trying to do history about people for whom there are not these traditional sources from which we draw yeah. on, how do you go about doing that in a way that, like, respects their investment in what they were doing, even if you don't necessarily have, like, a published collection of letters or, mm-hmm. you know, their diaries or something to actually work off of. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, I'm not... One of the many reasons I was annoyed is because I think there's plenty enough written about her to do, like, a two-page article on your... I, just her. Just her. I think it's possible. Having read yeah. numerous just about her, it is definitely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Okay. So, she's going to spend four years learning everything there is to know about making wine, but in spite of her training, in spite of her father-in-law's investment, the business still tanks a second time. So she goes back to her father-in-law is like, I promise I can make this work. It looks like the wars are wrapping up, like, just one more investment. And so he gives her the money again. And, like, great moment to flag, like, privilege is a cool thing. Like, it, had she not come from some pretty wealthy families, would not have someone just willing to throw a lot of money at her twice for something that hasn't worked well. But mm-hmm. she manages to make really good use of this last investment and actually makes it work this time helps that the wars are winding down and so Mm -hmm. she's looking around she's trying to figure out what is the best way to invest our resources like we have a bunch of wine sort of sitting in our cellars we need to sell it we need to sell it quickly where are we going to do this and for reasons that i think will make sense in a second she sell she's like russia russia is where we need to go um, which is sort of an interesting place when you think about particularly like champagne and wine culture, at least when I do now, like Russia does not immediately jump out to me as like the place for which you want to push your products. Um, but at the time, even though Russia is sort of economically behind a lot of Europe in terms of development, socially, especially the Russian nobility is super interested in French culture and French products. Isn't it the language of the Russian court for a minute? It is indeed. Um, And so they're really into, like, French things. And she Mm -hmm. kind of figures, well, champagne is French. I think they probably like drinking there. Not to generalize about Russia, but the Russian court in particular really likes some good wine. I think that's a good connection. Mm -hmm. And so she figures that if she can get her champagne to Russia as soon as the war ends... She'll be the first one in the door. She can unload all of these bottles that she's had just sitting in her cellars and hopefully get the Russian court hooked on her champagne so that way she can get some repeat customers. Problem is, the wars are coming to an end, but they're not over yet. And so there's still a blockade. It's still really difficult to ship things overseas to Russia or anywhere, really. And so Mm -hmm. she has to sort of figure out a way that 
everything is ready to go the moment the wars are done, but that doesn't send it too early so that it gets captured and confiscated by the British. Um, and so mm-hmm. she kind of does the sneaky thing where she smuggles her champagne to Amsterdam and just starts loading it up in a basement cellar in the city and eventually collects about 20,000 bottles of champagne and is like, okay, the second the war's over, we're going to put this on a ship, we're going to send it to Russia, we're going to see if we can beat everyone else. And so in June 1814, right as things are sort of winding down, she loads about 10,000 bottles onto a ship. And she's like, we're going to go, we're going to sell this. And they show up in Russia a couple weeks later. Huge mm-hmm. hit. Everyone loves it. Helps that, like, oh, it's the first big shipment of wine to show up. There won't be any more shipments for a couple of weeks. So it is, at that point, sort of the only option. But mm-hmm. Tsar Alexander I makes an announcement. He's like, this is the only champagne I'm going to drink. And when the Tsar of your absolutist monarchy is like, this is my thing, it very quickly Every- becomes everyone's thing. Bastable, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So great. sells out all 10,000 of her bottles in a matter of weeks. Another shipment arrives with about 12,000 more bottles. Those also sell out really, really quickly. And so all of a sudden she has this huge market of Russian nobility who are all really interested in getting her particular type of champagne. Mm-hmm. And when um, nobility drinks it. Nobility's it got that money. The Well, it becomes the like fancy drink, you know. Yes. And yeah. the other thing that really helps it take off is immediately following the war, there's a big gathering in Vienna in 1815 called the Congress of Vienna, where all of the victorious European powers get together and basically are trying to like reestablish order in Europe, doing it like very, when you think of like white men in Europe gathering around a table in like cigar smoke filled rooms, mapping out the Mm -hmm. destiny of an entire continent, that's pretty much what they did. So carving out game of thrones style except it's all women now <laughs> there was this really great shot in the last season where they go around this one of those big map tables and it's pretty much all women mm-hmm. and then all the advisors are men and i was like boy have we not seen this before this is quite a sight <laughs> and it's fantasy so that feels good yeah um this segue, is sorry very much that but all dudes um all dudes so all the time all great. the time mm-hmm. exactly what we like to see um, party planning mm-hmm. and, and exactly so it is it is ostensibly this political conference to settle very serious diplomatic matters reestablish national borders mm-hmm. reset the order in europe but you get a bunch get of people wasted all the time just like yeah. parties <laughs> every day getting super hammered in these like fancy <laughs> viennese palaces um, and what is the thing you're going to drink when you're partying in Vienna? Well, you're on vacation, right? I mean, basically. What are you going to drink in Vienna? I don't know. What do you drink in Vienna? You're going to drink toddies? French champagne. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, right. Like, France has just gotten defeated, but everyone there is pretty insistent that, like, it's not a party if there's not champagne. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's this it's weird kind of cultural thing where France has been the enemy for two-something decades now. But their stuff isn't. But their stuff is still the thing that everyone wants. And I think if that... You make good bread. Right. If you're going to pick, like, French cheese, French wine, French bread, like... Yeah. Bread, cheese, wine. Like, the three staples. I mean... (laughs) At least of of my any good diet. (laughs) Yeah. We are not doctors. We should not give you health advice, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, they are, like, the cultural touchstone of 
like when you're trying, you like Russia, like when you're trying to be uh, elite or trendsetting or fashionable, it's always French. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's just a classiness associated with France. Yes, as all of the episodes of Chef's Table that I've recently watched have imparted on me, chef cook- mm-hmm. French cuisine is the way to go if you want to be classy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but so, have you had Italian food? It's so good. Italian food is great. I've got so some good. homemade food. meatballs. Food anyway, is good. How about that? Good. I have not Sorry, had breakfast yet, so I'm a little easily distracted at this point. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You want to talk about cheese or bread some more? Sorry. Keep let's, going. Let's Champagne. Talk about wine fancy. Some more. Drinking um, it in Vienna. Drinking it in Vienna. And so it very quickly spreads. And her champagne in particular is one of the ones that people are like, this is really, really good. We want more of this. Um, mm-hmm. Barb Nicole, obviously pretty jazzed about the fact that like everyone in Europe wants to drink her champagne. But mm-hmm. he's really quickly running up against this issue that she can't make it fast enough for people. Because it, the way wine works, like you plant the grapes you harvest the grapes, mm. you only have so much champagne. You can't necessarily scale up really quickly because it takes mm-hmm. time to plant and get your grapes to grow. It takes time to bottle it. it. You have to let it sit for so many months before it's ready to sell. It's a very time-consuming process that doesn't necessarily lend itself to scaling really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so she looks at this and is like, okay, so I can't necessarily fix those things. But there are other parts of the champagne-making process that are inefficient, that take too long. Let's see if we can look at some of those and make them better. And here's sort of her really central contribution to the champagne industry. Um, And to understand it, we should take like a bit of a walk through how champagne used to be made. Um, Mm -hmm. So champagne itself, you make it by adding sugar and yeast to like a base white wine. Um, And as the yeast digests the sugar... One of the byproducts of that process is the carbon dioxide that makes champagne bubbly. I never knew that. Okay. I did not either. So apparently you you can kind of make champagne from any type of white wine. You just have to sort of do the process. But there's, in Europe at least, a whole set of rules about what can and can't be called champagne. And it mm-hmm. has to be from the particular region in France that makes mm-hmm. champagne. is the only thing in Europe that you can call champagne. But it is just mm-hmm. yeast, sugar, and a wine. The mm-hmm. yeast makes all of this carbon dioxide that makes it bubbly. But then once the yeast is done digesting the sugar, it dies and sort of like floats to the bottom. And so you've got all of this like dead yeast in it, which makes it look milky. It doesn't necessarily taste great. It's not like the most attractive thing to have in your mm-hmm. champagne, especially if you're trying to market it to very upscale people who are interested in this sort of clear, crisp taste of champagne mm-hmm. without dead yeast in it. And so prior to her arrival on the scene, the way you dealt with that is you would take the top layer, which is clear, and you'd pour it into a new bottle. So that way you leave all of the yeast and byproducts on the bottom of the bottle and just take the mm-hmm. clean stuff off of the top. The problem is this is going to waste a lot of product because you've got all of that stuff in the bottom that you can't use. And every time you pour it into a new bottle, you're losing a lot of the carbon dioxide as it escapes and bubbles out of the solution. So what you're ending right. up with is like less and more flat champagne, which isn't really yeah. great for anyone. No. Um, okay. And because of that, it's a really expensive time-consuming process because every single bottle has to be re-poured out into another bottle yeah. before you can sell it. Um, yeah. And she looks at the system as like, okay, I think this is an area 
where we can fix things, where we can make some improvements. Um, and so she develops a process called riddling, which is still the basic process used for making champagne today. And so instead of pouring it into a new bottle once all of the yeast has died, um, she developed a system of racks wherein the workers would put the champagne bottle in the rack with the neck facing down and every day would come through and rotate the bottle a little bit and tip it slightly up and then put it back in the rack. And over the course of a month to 45 days, the angle generally increases just like a little bit each day. But by the end of the month, you basically have your bottle completely upside down. And what that mm -hmm. does is it gathers all of the yeast and all of the byproducts at the bottom. But in this case, the bottom is now right by the neck of the bottle. And so what that lets you do is you can then just pull the very top bit out of your champagne bottle, which has all of the dead yeast, all of that byproduct in it, and the rest of the bottle is still nice and clear, but you don't have to pour it out. You're not disturbing the carbonation. It's just that little bit at the neck of the bottle that has to get pulled out and then replaced with a little bit more of sort of sugary wine solution. Mm -hmm. um, and then Pretty smart. Super smart, and also so much faster. So rather than having mm -hmm. to sort of laboriously hand pour all of these bottles into new bottles, you just have these huge racks in the cellars that workers go through every day, do a little turn and tap, and then a month later, just like a little bit of a syringe. Um, nowadays, it's all automated, so there's systems that will do the rotation automatically, and it'll freeze the little bit at the neck of the bottle, so you can just mm -hmm. sort of pull like the icy yeast out. Um, but at this time, it's still all done by hand. But even so, this process is so much faster. It means that they can produce a lot more champagne with the same amount of labor and allows mm -hmm. them to expand really, really quickly where they otherwise would not have been able to. Um, hmm. So in the sort of early 1800s, the company is producing maybe 11,000 bottles a year. And by the 1860s, they're producing a quarter million bottles a year. And like, would not be able to scale up if she had not developed this technique. Um, and at the same time, that scaling lets champagne go from a luxury good that really is only available to like royals or high nobility to something that the broader sort of upper and upper middle classes can drink. And so it transitions from being legitimately a luxury good only available to the richest people to a luxury good that is available to a wider group of wealthy people, but that makes those people feel like they're participating in the sort of mm -hmm. high court society that Champagne mm -hmm. originally was developed for. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's very much this sort of deliberate, like, oh, you're like newly wealthy, you aren't part of the like social groups, but you want to feel like you're participating in that culture. And Champagne becomes one of the sort of luxury consumable items that allows people to feel like they're participating in that sort of elite social culture as they move up mm. the social ladder following the Napoleonic Wars and sort of Europe figuring out what its new socioeconomic situation is going to be. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we can very much thank her for the fact that like, you know, opening night parties for theaters hmm. have champagne or that mm -hmm. New Year's Eve celebration has champagne. It's always a celebratory beverage. Exactly. Why do you think that is? I think, in part, I think it comes from the fact... Because it's, it's an elite thing, so you're going to spend your money on this one occasion. You know, yeah. you're not going to 
when someone drinks champagne as like their casual beverage, I was like, ooh, aren't we fancy? You know what I mean? Exactly. And so I think it is that connotation that, oh, this is a fancy thing. We all be Russian nobles in our hearts kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think we want to admit that to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay yeah and so she's gonna run this company um from the time of her husband's death in 1805 um through her death in 1866 making her one of the only women in france or europe or really the world at this point to own and operate a huge multinational company 1866 1866 when was she born 1777 1777 she didn't like what that's that's old. <laughs> yeah, that is she. That's she does late really 80s. well. Late eighties, early nineties. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy old. Sorry, that doesn't. <laughs> it's it happened, but I'm still like maybe it's the champagne that mm-hmm. does well for her brand, where she's like, I drink it every day, uh, and look how well I have done. Look how well I am. I'm so French. Yes. Um, um and the company is still around making champagne today. It's now called mm-hmm. uh, Vevu. Cloqui Posandine, which is, it just means like the widow Cloqui Posandine, which was the title she was known by after mm. her husband passed away. Um, it is currently valued at over a billion euros and is one of the Whoa, largest so producers of champagne in the world. Yeah, no, they're, they're doing real fine. Um, and it's this wow. very distinctive yellow label um, mm-hmm. is the sort of brand mark for them, which developed... Um, when they started sort of mass producing their champagne, there were a lot of people copying them. And so they needed to figure out a way to sort of mark, this is our champagne that is like assured the quality that you expect from our particular brand. And originally they Mm -hmm. would do that by putting a little thing in the cork, um, just -hmm. like a little symbol in sort of a similar way to branding cattle. Like you'd brand your mark in the cork. So that way when bottles were sitting on racks, it was really easy to see what brand is what. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. But after a while, especially once people started purchasing champagne in stores, you'd realize you wanted something a bit more visually attractive to grab people's attention rather than having to like peek at the top of each bottle. So that way you could put them up on shelves Mm -hmm. for sale. And that's why you get this like really bold yellow, basically large sticker on the side of the bottle that eventually develops into the sort of gold label that is more akin to the kind of labels you'd see on champagne or wine bottles today huh yeah which i thought was really interesting so she that's crazy you know her mark is still very much on the champagne industry today yeah fascinating was she involved in that whole you have to be from the champagne region to be champagne like do you, or was she pre that she was pre that so branding. that that is a more recent development um particularly in the eu but sort of more generally it's a one of the weird things that governments actually regulate fairly seriously is this idea that you can't label wine and market it as a particular kind of wine without meeting certain qualifications so in the u.s mm. there are particular regions that get branded and then are government regulated. So like it's illegal to say your wine comes from Sonoma if it doesn't actually come from Sonoma. And there's like laws mm. in force with criminal penalties if you're marketing your wine like that. And so it's the same thing in mm. the EU where if your wine does not come from the Champagne region, even if it is the same process, 
you can't call it champagne. You have to call it like sparkling wine or Prosecco or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that sort of develops over the course of the 20th century as the wine industry globalizes and people realize, oh, if I call something champagne, I can charge more money for it. Or if I say this is like a Sonoma wine, that might get me more money than if it's from New Jersey. Um, Which like New Jersey actually apparently has like a wine growing region. Um, But right when you think about that, you're like, oh, I want the I want the California wines. I don't want the New Jersey wines necessarily. I don't know if it's a legal thing, but like bourbon whiskey, right? Bourbon versus Tennessee whiskey. Yeah, and I, I, I don't actually know if it's a similar legal structure, but it's the exact same yeah, concept. Yeah, I don't think it is, but I mean, I'm, I don't know for sure. I know that everyone gets real prickly when you call Jack Daniels bourbon. They do not like it here in Kentucky. They do not care for it, so pick your fights accordingly. Um, that's crazy. I, uh, honest confession, Michael, don't like champagne. You don't like champagne. I, I probably haven't had good champagne. Or what is considered good champagne. That's possible. I know, I mean, in college in particular, when we had opening nights, it was not the highest of quality. Um, yeah. But the, the other thing I learned in doing this is that the names for the types of champagne are actually related directly to what happens during the riddling process. So like a brute, which is basically like the, the least sweet champagne you can get is so-called because they're not putting any additional sugar in when they fill up the space taken up by the yeast. And then there's sort of a scale of sweetness up dependent on like how sweet is the solution that you put back in the champagne. Yeah. So it's possible that, you know, you might like either like a sweeter or a less sweet champagne based on whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I drink red dry wine. (laughs) So the opposite end of the spectrum is like less. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I want to try pink champagne at some point just for the novelty of it and because mm-hmm. I like the movie and Affair to Remember, but uh, that's not <laughs> the only reason. I'm not excited for the taste. Um, I think the idea of getting drunk on champagne sounds miserable, but uh, I know some people have a great time. I can confirm. So, this might be a little too much, but at my college, we had a tradition for the student shows or on opening night rather than like standing around the lobby with like a glass of champagne mm-hmm. to celebrate opening you'd have what's yes. called a champagne night where everyone would get an entire bottle and you'd go around and the people would could stand up and like speak to like the students that were 21 and older yes of course only legal drinkers yeah. everyone else got apple yes. cider um yes and you would sort Responsible. of speak to everyone like it was so uh-huh. amazing working with you sort of like taking the the opening night toast to the extreme mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but people would often consume an entire bottle or two of champagne over the course of those evenings and then have to get up for classes the next day and that was always my favorite thing was to watch people walk into their like 9am class the next day and be like oh you go? were at champagne night last night because it's a very particular kind of unpleasant yeah. morning. I feel like the headache is way worse. It g- can confirm it is way worse. And one of my favorite movies, Philadelphia Story, they notoriously get super drunk on champagne in that. And then she has her wedding the next day. And there's this, all this, everyone is hungover in the scenes. And it's just a lot of, like, hiding from sunshine and, like, wearing big hats. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the night was fun, but it doesn't mean the morning's going to be great. But, yeah. Yeah. I'm not eager to uh, experience that. But, you know, life's short. Maybe I will at some point. I don't know. (laughs) But so for all of you, 
the boring of wine or the like class the new classy of wine it, it sure. does seem we've That's sort fair. of gone in a way sort of full circle away from like champagne being this marker of like super classiness and now it's these like dark red very dry wines that are like oh you are sophisticated if you drink red mm. whereas the white feels oh, okay. like more i'll take the... that i mean it is interesting like like champagne and celebration go hand in hand i think it's also the fact that it's like a party favor in a bottle too like there's a show with it yeah do you know what i mean like ooh, who can open it oh who's gonna fail or you can like cut the top off if you're dramatic or you've seen like you know, the crazy waiters that do a flourish with how they open a bottle of champagne. It's all this kind of theatricality, too, which is very, um, a, a stereotype, I would say, of, like, being French. You know what I mean? <laughs> it allows you to kind of indulge in that, you know, whole feeling. Um, yeah, champagne's always, like, a little bit of a show. It's a show to, like, drink it because it's fancy, but it's also, like, a show of getting it even to the party and open, you know? Yeah. It definitely is. It's a moment. You know, you're making a moment just as much as you're, like, drinking the thing. Yeah. Um, it's it, not to, like, keep bringing in theater examples, but the green room of the last theater I worked in had a champagne cork stuck in the ceiling because someone had <laughs> opened it with a little too much vim and vigor. <laughs> I think you're just supposed to twist it, aren't you? You're just supposed to, like, cover it and twist it, like... Yeah, like, there are ways to take it off without it becoming a projectile. Gently. Like, you don't have... It doesn't have to shoot... We've watched too many movies. But the shooting watched is too the many Bos Lerman movies where it's like, oh, make it a firework out of a bottle. And it's like, you don't need to do that. Calm down. It's <laughs> Calm down, everyone. You don't yeah. need to cause damage. No, but causing um, damage is the whole fun, right? It's, it is a sort of risk. Yeah, you're doing that to yourself, it. though. You don't need to do it to like somebody's house, you know? Very fair. Very don't, fair. don't give me an errand the next day because you shot my window out with a campaign cork you know what i mean i really hope that's not from personal experience no it's not but you know not yet anyway i don't know new year's is around the corner we'll see what happens it is but Um, so for all of those people who on new year's are getting a little more tipsy on champagne than perhaps they should be can be mm -hmm. grateful to miss cloquie for providing that for them what was her first name barbara barb nicole barb nicole you got this. You've got Thanks. the French accent down. I think you should. I'm making it now. up, dude. Calm down. <laughs> I took Spanish in high school, and I can't even remember that. Somebody on the elevator the other day, I was like, "What floor are you on?" And they were like, "Cinco," and I was like, "I don't know what that is out of context of counting them one to ten. Oh no! And then I like went to five. I was like, "This one, right?" And she was like, "Yeah, it's it's five. And I was like, "I'm sorry. I'm stupid and don't know languages." Um, something to maybe have a New Year's resolution about. There we go. Learn learn more French. I think I have Rosetta Stone French. Oh. Yeah, I should get in that. You, if you could you send me some bringing stuff. up ladies. Yeah, I could let you borrow it. Yeah, for sure. No worries. Yeah, I've been cool. meaning to, to learn to get my languages a little bit better because it seems like we're going to keep mm-hmm. encountering people whose names I'm going to mangle and I just need to fix that. Yeah, I'm going to hop back into that French life. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.